You want me to say it or you want me just you want me to keep it to myself? Okay. If there ever was an encouragement from your wonderful bride before you get up and say, Thus saith the Lord, I'm gonna to have to remember this one. I get up, turn my mic on, get ready to walk off. Sandra looks me deeply in the eyes and says, Boy, that chicken sure does smell good. <laughs> deflated but she's right it does if you would take your copy of God's word turn to John chapter 16 John chapter 16 verses 16 through 33 are our verses for consideration and while I have in the past with such a big chunk broken in two I'm going to make it through all these verses here this uh, this morning now you may be thinking wonderful cold beans and cold chicken if he's going to do all that but I'm going to go way quicker than I want to go. And you may say, well, when you get to the other side, well, man, what do you leave on the cob? I'm here to tell you these last few words. This is the last couple of moments in the upper room. What's the last words Jesus will try to comfort in incredible love to his 11 disciples and by implication to me and you. Then he will close in prayer in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And then they'll leave that upper room, cut across the Kidron Valley up that side of the mountain, and then things were going to go sideways. And everything that he's warning them about within a couple of hours is getting ready to happen. So what would he say? Last things. In that upper room, on this faithful night, most importantly, the title of the message, I have overcome the world. I invite you to stand in honor and reading of God's word, John chapter 16, beginning with verse 16. I invite you to follow along silently as I read aloud the word of the living God. Jesus speaking to his 11 said this, a little while. And you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, 
and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you, because you, excuse me, that I will ask in my Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me. And I believe that I came from God. I came from the Father, and I have come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world, and I'm going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Father, if in that moment, for what was getting ready to happen to 11 men who did not fully understand the implications... That we're going to see in reality what they were trying to grasp within their finite minds about this figurative speech about the Son of Man must be go up to Jerusalem and be handed over to sinful man and die and be resurrected on the third day. They're still groping after things. It's still to be lived out for them in reality. But here we sit. 2,000 years removed from this incredible act of love and encouragement. Father, thank you for this time. There's not a single solitary soul in this room who chose this time and this hour to be in this world, but you knew all things beforehand, before the foundation of the world. Father, thank you for the blessing of full revelation before us. Teach us, give us that which your son promised if we ask in his name. Help us to know you. And your purposes and plans that were fulfilled through your son, Jesus Christ. So come and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Give us ears to hear. Give us minds to understand. Give us hearts to be moved. And give us lives to be transformed more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. One of the uh, greatest blessings, I suppose, in having grandchildren particularly when they're close enough by, not down the street, but you got to drive a little bit for Sandra and I, about an hour and 45 minutes south uh, to North Jackson, and see both sets of our sons and their families, particularly our grandson. And Sandra didn't notice it, but yesterday we had been down there and we were watching Brooks while Tyler and KT went and did some mom and daddy stuff with some errands. And my grandson saw Castaway for the first time. Now, my grandson doesn't sit still for very much at all. If he does, it's only for a brief moment or two, and then it's on to the next event, okay? His um, moments of concentration are just that. They're moments, and then they're gone, and then it's on to something else. He was fascinated by the man in the boat trying to 
paddled his way off that island after being some time. I don't know what it was that captivated him. He was even doing the hand motions as Tom Cruise was trying to get over those waves. And he was sitting in Sandra's lap, laid up against her chest, watching the movie and being entertained. And I glanced over at him, and I was moved to tears. Not because of Castaway, but looking at my grandson and the wonder in his eyes, in his face. Everything is new to him. Can you slide your feet back into those little bitty toddler shoes? Everything's brand new. And the only thought I had looking at him was, Father, I just prayed. I said, Father, I said, that, that life belongs to you. Thank you for the joy of him in our lives, but he belongs to you. In this world that he's growing up in, I'll protect his heart, fulfill your purposes and plans for him. And tears, Sandra was locked into a castaway. She wasn't paying attention to me. And so I had to wipe away a tear or two. This world, physically, absolutely breathtaking in its beauty. I am looking at my son, fascinated by a movie that has been shown a gazillion times in the last year since it was made, but to him it was brand new. He's not, he doesn't look far enough out at that young age to look out at the Gulf of Mexico and see how big and beautiful. He hasn't stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon and looked out and had his breath taken away by the depth of the hand of God, crafting with a word that crevice throughout the earth. He hasn't stood at, the, stood at the base of the Rocky Mountains and look up in wonder and just majesty and awe of the cragged rocks reaching up almost into heaven. Now, this world is absolutely breathtaking in its beauty. But spiritually speaking, it's exactly the opposite. It's absolutely broken and antagonistic against its creator. Everything, even the inanimate objects that I just described, Everything was broken at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. It just didn't uh, affect the human condition. It didn't just separate you and I, which it did, of course. But sin is pervasive in absolutely everything that God created, even this physical world. It's broken. It's an antagonistic. Down to creation itself. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation itself is waiting for the consummation of all things, that every true believer would be revealed, the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. No, through the sin, the original sin through Adam, it affected absolutely positively everything that God made. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. New heaven and new earth. Absolute perfection. World without end. Even creation itself. So through the eyes of my grandson, I saw wonder and amazement. I'll see other episodes, Lord willing, as he interacts with the world that God made. But sooner than later, he will understand and feel the effects of its spiritual brokenness as well. Death. 
loss of life. I'll never forget for his daddy when he was a little boy, he first bought the gold, first goldfish until he came home from school one day and the goldfish was no more. His first time for his daddy to feel, see the effects of something dying. And then it gets worse. If not only death, what about for the rest of us, temptation itself? I mean, isn't that one of the most glorious aspects we look for in that day? I don't have to wrestle with sin anymore. I mean, we look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone and something to devour. What a wonderful life. Now in this upper room, what looks like in a narrow sense to the 11, because what in a matter of hours is getting ready to happen? Right in front of their eyes. And in fulfillment of prophecy, what's going to happen to them as well as they run and scatter? Verse 33 is the key, not only for them, but for us at this moment. This is where it draws every believer in, in verse 33. But take heart of all the descriptions of the beauty and the wonder of God. Yes, can you imagine how much more beautiful it will be in a new heaven and new earth? But on the other side of that coin, the second side of that coin, all of that death, all of that temptation, all of that misery, all of sin's brokenness and its effect on God's world, take heart, I've overcome the world. I don't know about you, but that writes my ship. Gives me comfort, joy, peace. But here's the question I think you need to take that statement and ask yourself. When you understand what overcome means, it's the only place in the Gospel of John that word's used. It's a military term for victory in warfare. It's not just, hey, man, would you cheer up? I mean, you walk around like in sackcloth and ashes all the time. How about a little, get a little pep in your step, a pump up? A start. No, it's based on a reality that war is waged and victory has been won over war. It's actual, it's taken place, and it is certain it's finished. Your version may say, uh, have cheer. It literally means to cheer up. Cheer up, I've overcome the world. All right, that's wonderful in the narrow sense that we understand every believer that's gone through some sort of maturity in the gospel understands that everything that needed to be done, it is finished, was accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. That singular act and work, he won. The cross of Jesus Christ is where heaven and hell met and heaven won. Victory, right? How does that apply to me? How does that apply to you? Just day by day, every day and every moment. And so here's the question I want you to keep in our minds as we're walking through these verses. And the very last thing that Jesus would speak in that upper room, close in prayer, head out, let's go take care of our business. Here's a question I want you to remember. When will this verse, but take heart, I've overcome the world. When will this verse mean something to me? In other words, if you're looking for, all right, I see the truth. I understand where it's applied to me. Now, where's the application in my life? What, what's going what's to carry me further, the takeaway for normal life at home with children, with a job, with the world itself that I have to interact with constantly every day, with my physical frailty, with my mental capacity? 
my emotions, everything. When will this verse mean something to me? Well, let's begin in verses 16 through 19 with comfort and confusion. Comfort and confusion. Look at verse 16. Jesus shifting gears now. If you notice, he's off the Holy Spirit, but not completely off the Holy Spirit. And we aren't losing the Holy Spirit at this point. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. All right, what is going on here? So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Are you ready? For over 2,000 years, it's still confusing people. What does the phrase, a little while, mean? I mean, let's be specific here. If it's good news, clear up this kind of figurative, kind of enigmatic kind of language that you're using. Will you cut to the chase? Will you break it down crayon style so Kim can understand what you mean? A little while. Sounds good. I'm not going to see you. I'm going to see you. I'm not going to see you. I'm going to see you. I like the I'm going to see you again part. When, now this is the first interruption of Jesus throughout the whole upper room discourse since chapter 14, verse 22, when Judas, not Iscariot, said this, and I don't think that it's any coincidence or any happenstance that this is the second interruption, because in 14, 22, Judas says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? That's what he's getting at. I mean, nobody likes separation, but everybody likes what? The homecoming. I, I, I don't like leaving the house and leaving my beautiful bride. But man, I love getting home. And for you newborn daddies, you want to talk about a clock watcher. How quick can this day get over with so I can get home to my son or my daughter? All right, we don't like the separate leaving the house, but man, I love the coming home. What specifically does Jesus mean by a little while? Well, here's the theologian's possibilities. There are three. Jesus means a little while you're not going to see me and a little while you will see me. He means after the resurrection. They don't understand that. He's told them over and over again. Excuse me. <coughs> He's told them over and over and over again. I must die on the third day. I'll be risen from the grave. They didn't understand that. Not in its reality yet. So what he's meaning here. Look, in a little while, in a little while, I mean in a couple of hours. They're going to come get me. You're going to run and you're not going to see me again. A couple of you are going to witness from a a little while away, but you and I are not going to have interaction until I'm risen from the graves. That's one possibility. That means in a little while you're not going to see me, in a little while you are. Look, I'm going to die, but hang on. I'm going to live. That's the first possibility. The second one, he means the day of Pentecost. Yes, he means I'm going to leave. They're going to take me. Yes, I'm going to die. You're not going to see me. Yes, you will see me resurrected for about 40 days in and out. But you're really going to see me again after I ascend and you think, well, that's it. He's going to heaven. No, the Holy Spirit will come on Pentecost. You will see me in the person and work of my spirit in your life forever. Maybe he means at Pentecost. Perhaps he means the second coming. Not only in the separation, not only the death, resurrection, see him again. Not only in the ascension, goodbye again in a little while, then back again with the Holy Spirit. Okay, But then ultimately one day, in what we understand and we stick to strictly, the physical return of Jesus Christ, every eye will see and every 
I will behold the Son of God returning. Maybe it means the resurrection. Maybe it means the day of Pentecost. Maybe it means the second coming. Are you ready? Well, what's the answer? Are you ready? Yes. You say, well, that's not an answer. They're still leaving three options on the table. Yes, to all three. I think the way Jesus is trying to understand, look, there won't be complete separation from me. I'm never going to leave you, nor what? Nor forsake you. The way that you will interact and see me is going to be a little different. You're going to see me. You're going to see the scars on my hand. You're going to see the scar on my side. You're going to put your hands in there. Now, you're going to recognize that I'm in a human flesh, but I'm going to be in my glorified state. It's going to be different. You're going to see me ascend to heaven, but just like the angel is going to tell you on that day, why are you looking up in heaven as if he's never coming back? He's going to descend again one day just like that. A little while I'm away and a little while I'm back. But here's the biggest takeaway from this confusion and comfort. Notice he never answers their question. All right, what is he in the world is he talking about this coming and going stuff? I mean, every time that he talks in this parable stuff, I can't figure out what he's, what he's saying. Does anybody know what he's talking about? Jesus understands and knows this. Are you asking yourselves, he says in verse 19, are you asking yourself what I mean by this? He never answers the question. I mean, how loving is that? They asked the question, if you ask in my name, you will be told. I mean, what's, what's the holdback? Are you ready? I want you to listen carefully, and these are not my words. Robert Mounts, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, said this. Their need at that moment was not intellectual enlightenment but spiritual preparation. Did you hear that? I'll say it again because it's the same for us. Their need and ours at the times when we are in sorrow and mourning. I'm about to give up. I mean, how many times can I go through this junk and hang on? I've only got so much strength, so much power, so much willpower, so much faith. Their need was not intellectual enlightenment but spiritual preparation. Are you ready? You and I are living in what I would call the period of rejoicing. The period of rejoicing. You and I are on the other side of the cross. All the implications to the 11 are every day needed by you and I. I mean, all you have to do is get outside the house and live. And you need this spiritual preparation, not intellectual information. I want to be prepared in myself for two reasons that weave its way all the way through this joy and peace. Joy and peace. So here we go. Verses 20 through 24. First reason. When will but take heart, be of good cheer, mean something to me. Verses 20 through 24. Are you ready? When I hurt like this. When I hurt like this. Look, let's pick up in verse 20, they ask the question, what is he talking about? Jesus can understand it. He says, you asking about this little while. Never answers the question. Truly, truly, I say to you, pay attention. What I'm getting, when he says truly, truly, it's not, I'm not just running commentary. Stop what you're doing and give me undivided attention. I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. 
When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive it. So that, purpose clause, for all of these reasons, so that your joy may be full. When does take heart, take cheer, cheer up, I've overcome in the world. When does it play a part in my, when is it applied to mine in your life? When I hurt like this. See that phrase at the beginning there, when you will weep and lament. It's used five times in the Gospel of John. Are you ready? That phrase is broke down, weep and lament. And every single solitary time that it's used, it's used in regards to death. First option for the little while. You're going to see me bleed and die on on the tree. And in your mind and your heart, you're going to weep and you're going to lament. You will be sorrowful. You will be distressed. Specifically, the natural reaction of the leaven to the death of Christ. He's dead. That's human being dying. That's it. The light switch has gone off. That's the end of all things. You're going to weep and lament. The world's going to rejoice because they think they've snuffed out this nut who calls himself the Son of God. Now, that's a natural reaction. But listen, the implications spread out further Sorrow and distress in the heart of the believer who is ready to give up. I don't mean just a tough time at work. I don't mean just rebellious teenagers. I don't mean just a bad news from the doctor, but you'll get over it with some medication and treatment. I'm talking about deep within your soul and your heart. Jesus understands the frailty of our human nature. He's getting ready to feel it. He understands those things. He wants to peel back deeper in our soul. For some of us, if not all in this room, finally getting to the point, I can't take another breath of the gospel because I seem to be pounding. How in the world am I overcoming this world? This world seems to be chewing me up and devouring me at this point. I'm on my last breath. I'm about to walk away from all of this business about Jesus being the Son of God and that for my peace, for my joy, and for my inheritance in heaven with God forever is simply faith and trust in him I'm about ready to stop by contrast the world will rejoice the world will think it's won and it's winning that's what the world thinks right now I mean Christianity is under some of its hardest persecution you personally even your workplace your kids at school some of the reasons why some of you may not have your kids in public school systems. I don't know. That's your choice as a parent. Then it gives the example of the pain of the woman in childbirth. Now, ladies, I can sympathize, but I can't empathize, okay? Dads in this room, let's just be flat out honest. We are doing absolutely positively nothing in that moment. Oh, we think we're doing something. Patting the head with a cool, damp cloth and encouraging, encouraging. But we're not doing anything. We're not feeling anything. But particularly for your ladies, you'll understand that. But boy, the joy. Those pictures you're sending to everybody, moms, you can tell it's right afterwards. And you're holding that life against your chest. Suddenly all that pain, all that length of time, all the I'm about to choke you if you don't quit saying push, push, push. Right? 
That's gone. Joy and rejoice are six times just in these verses. Where do you find joy? We're not talking about emotions. Let's concentrate here, guys. These are the takeaways. If you're banking your faith on the truth of your emotions, you're going to find yourself wanting at all times. Our faith is not based on the truth of emotions. Our faith is based on the emotions of truth. There is a huge difference between that, which begs the question, what kind of joy is this? Not just, hey, I feel pretty good today. I mean, I'm having a great day. We said it to 100 people when we first came in. How was your week? Oh, it was good. It was good. That's the Sunday morning, I'm not going to say lie, that's the Sunday morning hypocritical face. No matter what, all right, great. I had the most gosh awful week all week, but I'm going to tell you to your face, everything was great. And you know different. Joy described here is not a momentary glee. It's based on spiritual realities. It's what Mounts meant when he said they don't need intellectual information. They need spiritual proofs. The concentration of your joy, that which is going to hold you when you're about to let go, you ready, isn't even you doing the holding. It is the truth cemented in the truth of God's word of those things that Jesus Christ is and performed on that cross for you. You ready? Those are absolute truths that the world doesn't want to have anything to do with. They're never going to have that joy. It's not even available to them. It's not about how I feel. You ready? In your mountaintop experiences when you are feeling, man, I am walking lockstep with the Lord right now. I am on a spiritual high. You want to help yourself out for further down the road? Because there will be a drop-off. Start praying in the, midst, in the midst of that euphoria, of the joy that you're feeling in Jesus Christ with this. Don't let me forget it when it gets bad. Because it will. Use that mountaintop experience to preload for the worst times. Most important verse... 20 but your sorrow look at that phrase I want you to underline that if you would if you don't mind marking in God's word but your sorrow will turn into joy will turn into underline it notice it doesn't say but your joy will be replaced excuse me but your sorrow will be replaced with joy you say what are you getting at all right listen <laughs> this is what you cling to this is your understanding You've heard me say it a bunch of times. My college coach said this. Son, anybody can pitch with a 10-run lead. When things are good, just pipe it right down the middle. Let them hit it. How are you going to act when the bases are loaded by one run and nobody is out? Can you get me out of that jam? That's what he's talking about. Did you see? Listen to me. The path to joy. More times than not will be through sorrow. He doesn't say he will replace it. He will turn it into. You might as well go ahead and understand it. If you hadn't understood it already. The path to that ultimate joy is meant to go through sorrow. You say, well, I don't want anything to do with the sorrow part. I don't want the tears. I don't want the anguish. I don't want the heartache. I don't want the spiritual exhaustion. Get ready. That's what he has to take us through. Man of what? Sorrows, what a name. You think it's going to be any different for me and you? 
You say, well, what does that do to me? I think it does two things. It does for me anyway. One, it gives me understanding. All right, if you're going to go naked and naive into the world and think everything is going to be rosy for you, then you don't understand the implications of what your Savior went through. Do you see? It's directly applicable. You abide in me, I abide in you. Everything in this upper room isn't disjointed thoughts. It's all woven together. If you're going to be in me and I in you, if you're going to love me like I love you to the end, you're going to go through the same things that I'm. Be prepared for that. Ephesians chapter 6 and 11, put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God for what? For the warfare. But the victory's already been won in that. I've overcome the war. That's it. The war is won, but the battles still rage in mine and your life. Every single solitary day. Second thing it does for me. In Christ, I can take on anything. You want to talk about the Teflon coating for life. Don't get your feelings hurt. Get all up in your emotions. Okay? All up in your feelings. Understand that's the path that he wants to. He's demonstrating his glory in the sorrow that the world thinks it's winning by pounding you down. He's going to bring entire joy. But only in this way. That you concentrate not on your own strength. But on the strength and the power that Christ has already delivered. We're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. You see? I mean, you want to be careful of this, but you bring it on. Come on. Come on. What you got? What you got for me today? If you're not concentrating on what Jesus is trying to communicate, I'm going to turn your sorrow into joy. Joy in me. Joy in your relationship restored to your Father only because of me. What's the surety of joy? Notice verse 22. I will see you again. Something's changed. In the little while back and forth, it was what? You will see me again. So where is the surety of this? I won't see you. I will see you. I won't see you. I will see you. Where's the surety in this sorrow turned into joy? I'm going to see you again. It's my prerogative it's not your prerogative. Do you want it resting on your prerogative? I don't want it resting on my prerogative. I'm too weak. If I'm going to sustain my faith, and it's up to me whether I keep it or lose it, I'm going to lose it. But if it's in him, I will see you again. It's exactly what Paul means in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God... How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary, elementary principles of the world? You can't give up when you understand that it is God who initiates everything. It is God before the foundation of the world he put his heart on you. Absolute, fundamental, spiritual truth. That's where joy is found and held and sustained and is sure. Well, you're not going to see me again. I'm going to see you again. And if I say it, thus it will be. Or you know what? It takes a load of bricks off of me trying to maintain everything. And you say, well, doesn't that make you lazy when you think it's all on him? No, it doesn't. It's the same thing when people wrestle with the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election. You think it shrinks you away from evangelism and it doesn't. It propels you out to it. This is the glory of God. 
Where would I want to live now and for all of eternity except in the middle of the glory of God? I don't run from it. I run into it. Huge. Verses 23 and 24. Look back there. In that day. Now we got a new introduction. This is in a little while. This is a new one. In that day. Most times when it's used in the New Testament, it means the return of Jesus Christ. In that day. Day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. That end goal, that your joy may be full. Are you ready? I don't like feeling just happy. I want to be really happy. I don't want to feel a little bit of joy. I want to, that phrase will, excuse me, may be full means, it means crammed. Packed in. You and I would say it this way. When Jesus says, so that your joy may be full, is crammed into completeness. In other words, there will be no lack of joy. You will experience joy to the nth degree when finally in the consummation of all things that he returns on that day. And I will see you. How? Verse 23, in that day, the end of the age, ask, he will give it to you. All right, what does he mean by it? To our health, wealth, and prosperity people, it says, for, you know, he wants you to have money. He wants you to be poor. Send in your seed money, ask him, and you'll get more money. It's, you know, return on investment, you see? It's just in practical sense. He doesn't want you to be sick. The only reason you have these infirmities inside is because you lack faith. You want to get up and start walking and dancing? All you have to do is have enough faith to do that. That's all feeding in to an incredible retardation and misunderstanding of that which God wants the most for us. And it's not our physical health. It's not our financial stability. It's not success and notoriety within the community. He wants you to know how much he loved you so much that he gave his son Jesus Christ to die for you. And oh, by the way, prior to that, you were his enemy. And all of your sins and all your thoughts were a direct rebellion to him. That's why Joseph said, why can I, how can I do this evil thing, Mrs. Potiphar, and sin against my God? You wrecked it. You broke it. And I'm the only one that's going to fix it to you, for you because I love you that much. And I want you to understand that. I want you to understand how much I love you. And the only time, ladies and gentlemen, you're ever going to see that is you can constantly set your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. Fundamental, absolutes, spiritual truths. That's the joy that it says here, different from the world, because your joy no one will what? Ever take away. The world can't give this joy, so it can't take it away. It doesn't belong to them. Second reason. When will but take heart, be of good cheer, means something to me. Look at verses 25 and the beginning of verse 27. When I love like this. When I love like this. Look at verses 25 through the beginning of verse 27. I've said these things to you in figures of speech, enigmatic language, parables, metaphors. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you love me. That wonderful promise in verse 33, cheer up, be of good cheer, happy, that I've overcome the world, 
It's going to mean something to you when you love like that to the degree that Jesus demands our love. I didn't say ask for our love, but demands it to such a degree that he would bring the analogy of the familiar relationship that many of us have in this room. I see families in this room. I see husbands and wives. I see grandmas and grandpas. I see children. And that's that love that interacts familial to us in families is one thing. But nowhere in a degree to the love that he demands based on who he is and what he's done for us. No one in this room. I cannot do that type of love for my wife, she can't do it for me. My grandson that I commented on my introduction cannot do that for me, no matter what he fulfills in his life. Not that type of love. This love is extra love. This love is supernatural love. So much that the Father would love you so much that even while you were a sinner, that his son Jesus Christ would die for you. In comparison, Jesus said it looks like hate. He's not suggesting to hate mother and father. It violates honor your mother and, mother and father. God's word does not conflict itself. He simply means in degree of devotion. My love that I demand from you based on who I am and what I've done for you demands that any other love in your life that is greater than a love for me in comparison looks like hate. The time is coming, he says in verses 25 and 26, in that day, post-resurrection, all that's time, right now. That's why I say we are living in the period of rejoicing. Right now at this moment, you say, well, there's sometimes I feel like rejoicing, but not overall. I mean, it's like a little kernel I get every once in a while. It is if you take your eyes off the prize. It is if you let the circumstances, if your vision and your life is too horizontal rather than vertical. We live eschatologically. We live in the truth of what has happened, what is happening, and what is already going to happen as if it's already happened. It's that sure. The return of Jesus Christ, the consummation, all that we read in Romans chapter 8, that even the creation groans for that day. We live in light of that in the reality that it is just as sure as everything else that already is accomplished through God's redemptive plan. Verse 27 is the key on this, when I love like this. Verse 27, he says, the Father loves you because you love me. Well, what's that got to do with understanding and getting and asking? Because the absolute one thing you cannot let up in your life to keep feeding this joy is your prayer life. What are you asking for? Here's where the Holy Spirit comes into play, okay? Quit using your prayer life like God is a genie in a bottle. That if I rub it the right way and say abracadabra, he's going to make me happy because of these things I perceive in my life that will make me happy. You want to die to that. You want to die to that self. And you want to grasp the reality of the truth in his word. Who he is, what he's done for you through his son Jesus Christ, the depth of the depravity of your own sin, the degree of his love through the sacrifice of his son, the surety of his resurrection, the life that is sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit and mind in your life, and his return and victory one day, that all this will go away. Hold your finger there. Turn to John chapter 15 real quick, verses 9 through 16. Real quick, real quick. Nick doesn't believe I'm going to make it to verse 33, but I'm going to prove him wrong here in just a minute. Let's remind ourselves, this talk in the upper room is woven together. Let's remind ourselves of our new position in Christ. You will ask me. You don't ask me directly. The Father loves you. John chapter 15, let's pick up in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. 
Abide in my love. Absolutely nothing he says in this upper room is not steeped in love. Some of it is plain. Some of it is enigmatic, figurative language. But all of it is soaked in love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, so that your joy may be in you, and that your joy may what? It's not the first time he said it. It may be full, packed into completeness. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend's You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The it Back in chapter 16 and verse 27 is ask him and it is what? I want to see your glory. I don't want to concentrate on me. I want to concentrate on who you are. Help me to understand you. Holy Spirit working in my life. Give me that illumination. Everything that is promised by Jesus, he will declare all things about me to you. Beg for that. Pray for that. Apply yourself to that, dig into God's word, hold it so tight, just like Jacob of old. I will not let you go until you what? Until you bless me and give me the joy that you promised me. And it's not in this world. It's not in my thoughts. It's not in my emotions. It's only in you. Because the Father loves you. Because you love me. He's not going to hold it back. He's not going to tease you. Ah, you can't handle this. Uh, you're too young, Landon. Can't handle these truths. Boy, you got to wait till you're 30 before you can understand all this stuff. You just can't get it. No, he's going to compress it, pack it into its fullness and completeness. Last one. Second half, verse 27 through 33. When will this take hold in my life? Be of good cheer. Take heart. When I'm weak like this. When I'm weak like this. Look at the second half of verse 27 back in John chapter 16 through verse 33. For the Father himself loves you because you love me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things, you're omniscient and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Look at Jesus' reaction. It doesn't come across in English, but it is so saturated. Are you ready? In pity. Do you believe now? You understand the gospel. Now, concentrate on this. The 11 are sitting in that room. None of the major implications have happened yet. But they're claiming, hey, we got it. Now I've got illumination. Now I've got full understanding. We fully believe in you. What Jesus is trying to say, yeah, you've come a little far in your faith, but you've got a long, long way to go. In a matter of moments, everything that I warned you about, everything that I said in this upper room, everything that I gave you preloaded for the moment, you're still going to run. And you're going to leave me alone. In fulfillment of Zechariah 
prophecy about scattering. Zechariah chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. They're going to run. Do you now believe? That's a lot of sarcasm. You say, gosh, sarcasm about faith and trust in him. Now, he's basically saying you've come this far, but you have so far to go for full understanding of the gospel. Are you ready? None of us in this room have arrived. None of us in this room has solidified our faith to the degree that God would give us the availability of understanding who he is and what he's done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Every single person in this room is a work in progress. The question is, are we going to take the time and the love for one another to help bring a brother that's not, or sister that's not far enough down the road and bring him lovingly along? We're not on this on our own. It's what it means to be a church. That's why the anticipation for the spring, Lord willing, praise the Lord, that this church will covenant together. Not simply so we can say, hey, we are a church. And hey, we do have a staff. And hey, everything is making sense now. I gotta be honest, there's a part of me that longs for that day, okay? It means that we love each other enough to understand that we need each other desperately. In some sense, you could say we are responsible and have a part to play in the joy in each other's lives. Where are we spending our limited time? Is it on the things of the Lord? Is it in His Word, explaining, understanding, talking about it, applying it? So there's a lot to do with how a church spends its money and the programs that need to be there. Now, you think you have faith right now? You boys aren't even close. Are right, you ready? Welcome that. Don't fool yourself into knowing that you know everything. Understand your need to ask in my name doesn't seem abracadabra, Jesus, everything, and poof, comes into play. In my name means in his character and his nature and his purposes and plans that are displayed for you, explained for you through his word. The only place you're going to get there. You want to cut off joy? Cut off the intake of God's word. Simple as that. Cutting, cutting off your own spiritual nose to spite your face. Just don't take in God's word. Don't have a taste for it. Don't have an appetite for it. Don't engage. Settleness in verse 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That peace is twofold. Not, an enjoy, not joy, but now we're in a different area. Twofold. Objective and subjective. Objective, you have peace with God through me. All the judgment, all the condemnation that you are due... That peace and that relationship that you broke is found in me and me alone. That's objective, outside of us. But it's also subjective. Personal comfort of assurance. Can you say with all sincerity, sing the best you can, blessed what? Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a what? Foretaste of glory divine. We live in light of the glory to be. Last one. Let's close with this. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Let's just add on to this. When does all of this promise of cheer up, be of good cheer, take heart, I've overcome the world. How does it apply to the believer? Well, Paul spells it out in absolute beauty. Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39. You want to pick me up. You don't need a rah-rah speech from your spouse or your mom and dad. 
You need the truths that are contained in these verses. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is it at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that your testimony? Do you understand that? Do you understand those truths? They're all found in one phrase, in an upper room, in a matter of hours, before he'll say those last words on the cross, it is finished. Be of good cheer. Christ has overcome the world. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. But not just in word for word's sake, beginning and end, but word and in deed. These aren't just flowery words to make us feel better for a moment. These are absolutes that have concretely been placed into history because of you stepping down out of heaven, being clothed in sinful flesh, being tempted in all ways, but living that righteous life that every single person in this room needs before we'll ever stand before you. It's your righteousness, not ours. We don't earn it. And that you would love your friends enough that you would lay down your life to pay the penalty by which every sinner in this room deserves to pay we see you in your word but one day we'll see you face to face but more importantly you will see us and all things will be made right again until that day sustain us through the truth of your word for your honor and your glory in Christ's name I pray Amen, Amen.